Part of what palliative care focuses on is helping people cope while living with their serious illness and still find meaning and joy in the life that they're living. Hi, I'm Bobby Carducci, certified caregiving consultant and educator, and I work with family caregivers to help them find solutions to the often challenging behaviors of dementia care. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer practical insights, and share some emotional support, and maybe even a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. It certainly is, and that's part of our mission here, that we will lighten the load for caregivers and maybe bring them a smile or two. This episode of The Roger That Show is sponsored by Artists Senior Living, where everyone is committed to creating a more empowered care experience. That's called The Artist Way. So what does The Artist Way mean? It means celebrating the unique elements of every person's story and understanding that their dementia does not define them. It means creating a positive, compassionate atmosphere of opportunity, and above all else, it means caring for everyone with dignity and respect. So if you're looking for a true memory care partner and want to learn how Artist Senior Living can help you help your loved one live their passions despite diagnosis, call 240-534-3301 or visit ArtistSeniorLiving.com. That's Artist, A-R-T-I-S, SeniorLiving.com. So in episode number 58 with Reverend Hank Dunn, we had a nice discussion about hospice care and how hospice care was very invaluable to us. But something we haven't addressed is palliative care and what is the difference between palliative care and hospice care. Exactly. And that brings us to today's guest, who is an MD specializing in palliative care and is board certified by the American Board of Internal Medicine in Hospice and Palliative Care Medicine. He works at the interface of communication skills, training, medical ethics, and palliative care, all in the effort to improve clinician skills. Current research focuses on teaching palliative care and communication skills to clinicians using both face-to-face courses and new technologies and understanding the impact of these educational interventions. He is interested in studying health systems interventions to improve seriously ill patients and family experiences. Please welcome Dr. Bob Arnold. Bob, welcome to the show today, and we are definitely interested in hearing about palliative care and the difference between that and hospice care, because even hospice, people understand the word, but they're not exactly sure what it involves, especially in today's world and dealing with dementias. First of all, thank you for inviting me. Second, I think it's a difficult concept, and it's fabulous that you're trying to help people be prepared, because trying to deal with this in the moment where you haven't thought about it is very hard. It sure is. (laughs) We know that. (laughs) So can you start us off with the difference between palliative care and hospice? Sure. You know, palliative care is a 
specialized palliative care, because I think all doctors and nurses and healthcare providers should provide palliative care, but the specialists or doctors and nurses and social workers and chaplains whose goal it is, regardless of where people are on the trajectory of their illness, to help people who have serious illness and their family have the best possible quality of life. We serve as an extra layer of support along with the primary care doctors and the specialists that may be taking care of patients. And we will see patients along with their oncologists if they're getting chemotherapy or their geriatrician or neurologists if they're being treated for their Alzheimer's disease. So if I'm hearing you correctly or understanding you correctly, uh, you're not their primary care person. Right. We're, we're, a, we're generally a specialist who focus on providing an extra layer of support to promote patients and their caregivers' quality of life. We can see people while they're undergoing therapy for their primary illness, or, you know, we see a lot of patients who are on the transplant list because they're pretty sick and have a lot of symptoms and we can improve their quality of life. Hospice is a federal benefit that provides care for patients who the doctor believes are in their last six months of life and whose primary to sole focus is only on quality on comfort. So the differences between palliative care and hospice are one, I can see people while they're getting curative therapy. Two, I can see people at, you know, not just with less than six months to live, they can have a year or two years or three years prognosis. We have the same philosophy of trying to promote quality of life. Does that help? I, I definitely think it does. Now, back in 2002, and I can't believe how long ago that was, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my mom was hospitalized in Florida with um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma mm -hmm. and admitted to the palliative care unit of the hospital. We fully expected her to come home. She did not. But I have to say that the doctors and the nurses that worked with her in that unit were absolutely amazing. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very special um, type of person who works with this on a regular basis. But I have to say at that time, it seemed to me, mistakenly, I now know, or from what you're saying, it seemed to me that it was end of life care that they were doing. And now we did see during the time we were there, some people graduated from palliative care and went home and some people didn't. Yeah, I would say, so I'm, I work in a cancer center like, like people who have lymphoma. I'm sorry about your mom. And I see people who are getting chemotherapy to prolong their lives. I see people in the ICU who are awaiting liver transplants to try to help them deal with their pain or their anxiety or to help the family with the anxiety of having a really sick loved one. 
So while some of the patients I see may die, the focus is anyone with serious illness to support them and their family and improve their quality of life. Now we do that by a variety of tools. That's why we're a multidisciplinary group. We treat pain and symptoms. We treat psychological problems such as depression or anxiety or confusion. We help make sure that people know what's coming next so that we can have care that's consistent with their values. We help with social issues about where they're going to go and live so that they have the support they need at home, as well as existential and spiritual issues. So our domains are sort of all the things that might influence how well someone lives when they have a serious illness. Now, one of the things when I was reading the palliative care, they are looking to keep the 911 hospital visits to a minimum. Did, did I understand that correctly? So, I look, I don't think most people like to call 911, right? And most people right. don't like going to the hospital. Right. So if we can keep people in their house where they often do better and promote their quality of life at home, it seems to me that's a win-win. Palliative care in America was focused largely initially in hospitals. That's an American tradition. In Canada and in Australia, most palliative care teams are in the community. I think that palliative care in America, as it becomes more mature, needs to be in the community because that's where most people get and want to get their care. So it would be more like the doctor that we see on the old programs where you come to the house to treat a person? You're absolutely right. The sort of many of the innovations in palliative care are to work either with home care programs or to build their own wraparound services. So UPMC, where I work, has a service where they go to people's house, our nurse practitioners, our nurses, our social workers, and we do televideo visits mm. with people who are at their house to try to provide really good palliative care when they're at home. And then most of, and most of us have off outpatient practices. So I have a practice in palliative oncology. One of my colleagues has a palliative nephrology program. Another has a palliative cardiology program. Uh, we need to take it out of the hospital because that's where people live their lives. Exactly. Now, during the time that we had Mike's dad with us, and he got most of his care at the VA hospital in Martinsburg, West Virginia, because he had 100% service-related disability, um, eventually they assigned me a nurse. And we had very early on telehealth assistance. I was provided a, a mini computer that hooked up to the phone line. And Jason and I were frequently in communication with one another. And I was able to get his blood pressure, his temperature, his weight on a regular basis and send it directly into his chart at the VA hospital. Um, Jason and I became such a team in support of, of Mike's dad. If I saw something I was not sure of, 
I would call Jason and he would check it out and vice versa. And very often he was the liaison between me and the doctors at the hospital because while they might look at me as what does she know, they would listen to Jason. I don't see anybody else doing that and maybe I'm wrong. Now we do have more telehealth, even my own personal physician because of COVID will get on a Zoom and talk to me. Um, but I've, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody else having that one-on-one -on -one connection with a specific nurse in the mini computer in the house. Is that something that you work with? So that's something that my colleagues work with. And I would tell you, Bobby, first of all, the VA is light years ahead of everyone else. They are now doing tele-oncology visits. One of my colleagues here is sort of in charge of that nationally. But there are a lot of health systems that are beginning to try to put their resources in outpatient medicine. So, for example, we have a whole system with our with our with UPMC health insurance and our health system where it's telehealth focused. Our cardiologists often have set up with home care telehealth so that they can weigh patients and see very early on if they're not doing as well. So I think this is something that we're going to see a lot more of. It may be one of the few silver linings of COVID is that we're pushing this. There's a fair amount of data at Sutter, which is a big health system in California, that this promotes patient satisfaction. And as Michael pointed out, it, it saves the health system money. It's a win-win for everybody. And our hospitals are full of not only COVID, but in in the years that we were taking care of Roger, it was MRSA um, that everybody was fearful of. And I would go in and I'd have to gown up and wear a mask and you know make sure that I wasn't spreading germs to other people. Um, so definitely, if you have somebody who's already sick, you don't want them to go to the hospital. No, and they don't like to go to the hospital. For my patients, we've now been doing a fair amount of telemedicine. If you have advanced cancer, you don't really want to come in with all the other cancer patients necessarily if you don't have to because you're already coming for chemo for, to come for another visit. It's easier if you can do it as a telemedicine visit. And so we've been able to integrate a hybrid system where sometimes people come in and sometimes we just do it as a televideo visit. And I think it does improve patient satisfaction we need a lot more study to make sure that it's as good for patients because I think that having an in-person conversation for at least old people like me still feels different than doing it on, you know, doing it on a HIPAA-approved video service. Yeah, for us, it was definitely progression. When he first came to us, even though he had multiple doctors, uh, he was schizophrenic to begin with. So we had a psychiatrist. He had a primary care doctor. He'd had a um, heart valve replacement. So he had a cardiologist and he had um, COPD. So he was seeing doctors for that. But it, we were first going like every three months and then it was monthly and then it was almost weekly. And then it became, you know, this telehealth thing. And eventually the doctors were coming to us as his dementia and his physical ailments progressed, uh, 
we couldn't have gotten more support and we would really like the idea that that's available to more and more people. Now, do you see a difference in response to those who are having, say, for a cancer like or a heart problem and then uh, dementia, which is basically a devastating long-term fatal brain disease? No, I, I think that for palliative care, palliative care's home was started historically in oncology. So I think that there are more studies and there's more advancement, I think, in that area. Although palliative care is now seeing patients with any sort of late illness and dementia would clearly fit, I think that for dementia, there also is a core part of palliative care is caring for the caregivers because there's an enormous amount of data about how devastating dementia is for caregivers and the stresses that they have. And so palliative care tries to focus both on preparing them and giving them the social supports they need. Because again, most people do better if their loved one is at home. So who decides the palliative care route? Is it the patient, the caregiver, uh, the the primary care doctor? Who makes that determination and writes the order? So typically, because we're a specialist, we're asked by one of the other clinicians to see the patient. It is growing more frequent that patients ask for us themselves or their loved ones ask for us. I'll send you a couple of websites that maybe you can post that give a lot of information for patients and families about palliative care and about when your loved one's admitted to the hospital, you can just ask the doctors there for a palliative care consult. For if you're in an area that has outpatient palliative care, you can, you know, just make an appointment. While most of my patients come from the oncology, I have some patients who just call the office and make an appointment. Um, In the past, I have done presentations on the doctor-caregiver relationship. Doctors are very, very busy and how to prepare for a doctor visit. Is there any insight that you could give to our listeners on how to prepare or how to strike that relationship with the palliative care doctor? Well, I think... um it's like probably any other doctor, a little bit of preparation goes a long way. Right. But it's writing down the sort of major things that you want to talk about. Right. I also think that, you know, it's being clear about priorities. If if you want to talk about 23 things, it's going to be hard because doctors, like everybody else, only have a certain amount of time. So it's spending the first couple of minutes of your visit negotiating what are the things that are most important in the visit so that you're on the same page? Right. I think it's often the case that having a second person there to take notes, because I think that often you get overwhelmed, is a great idea. There are some really good apps out there in the world that allow you to audio tape the visit. And I think, I mean, personally, I think those are fabulous. I was going to ask you about that because that's one of the things that that I tell people. Ask the doctor first, but you now have these cell phones that you can record because you get overwhelmed with 20 pounds of information to go into your two-pound brain. 
And so it's easier to go back and and listen to the conversation again to get more information. I was going to ask you about that if you had a problem with that. There's a great app called The Bridge that I use a fair amount that got it's been developed through UPMC, which is how I know about it, but it transcribes the visit and so it underlines the doctor words so that then you can sort of click on them and it'll bring you up to definitions. Oh wow. And I think I think that those kinds of technologies are really good things because doctors are so used to using doctor language that sometimes <laughs> we forget. Yeah. And so I think that those are good for doctors because it allows you to tell your loved one so the doc 30 family members don't call. Right. And it's good <laughs> for you because you can listen to it at home. Um Having that recording of the doctor's visit also helps out when you go home and your wife says, well, did you ask that? And what did he say about this? That frequently happens with Mike and I. Um, but I'm, I'm really pleased that you mentioned, you know, palliative care for the caregiver because um, sadly, many times the caregiver dies before the person needing care because they have neglected their own health and they just become tired, worn out, absolutely can't function anymore. Um, I actually did a presentation at a caregiver conference in Toronto that was mostly clinicians. And when I talked about the collateral damage and the rate of death among caregivers, I saw these doctors sitting up and taking notice. And one of them came to me afterwards and said, now I understand why a family caregiver is often not happy with me for re releasing their loved one from the hospital. Because sometimes that's when the caregiver gets to sleep through the night for the first time in a long time. Yeah, I think there, there are a couple things. One is that the data suggests, in fact, that caregivers do less well when their loved one is institutionalized with dementia, because then they just spend all day in the nursing home in the pre-COVID era, and so it, it increased anxiety and depression. The other thing is that in some ways it's easier for the patient, because the patient can feel what's going on in their body, and so their body is giving them messages how it can go. For caregivers who are often, you know, women in our society, they want to they want to make it better. Yes, and it's very hard to see their loved one getting worse, and there's nothing they can do to make it better. And so I think that is very stressful. I definitely had that syndrome, if you want to call it that. It seemed to me that every time I thought I had made some improvement or got a handle on it, something else would pop up. I kept trying to fix the unfixable. And that's one of the things I try to teach caregivers now, that you we're, we are not going to change the outcome. The only thing that we can do is, as you say, make the best quality of life in the time that we have together, but that's really hard to let go of. I kept trying to to make a difference. I kept trying to change it. I kept trying to fix it. I think it's particularly hard for caregivers who are healthcare providers, because hmm. you're then torn between wanting to be, you know, the nurse or the doctor, and also being the son or the daughter or the spouse. And they're sort of different parts of your brain, and they're different things that bring you sort of meaning. And so I, it's often the case that I find 
those are very difficult when you have two roles and you're trying to do both of them. Interesting, interesting thought. I've often heard that doctors make the worst patients. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to tell you, I'm scared a little bit. You know, uh, Bob, I'm 72 years old and I'm reaching the age where many people have one of these terrible cognitive diseases. Um, and it scares me a little bit that maybe I know too much. <laughs> yeah, I. what I would say is um, you sound like you keep busy. You do all the things you're supposed to do to try to promote brain health. And, <laughs> yes. and like you also point out, we can't, there's some things that are out of our control and there is a certain sense in which I think it's particularly hard for people who are very high functioning to realize that that we can't change or control every anything. And I think that a lot of what needs that often helps is sort of figuring out what you can control and what helps you cope, either religion or yoga or running or reading that helps you sort of get some resilience to cope with what's unchangeable. Mm-hmm. You know, I've kind of warned, you know, my children, you know, give them little tips on, you know, what to do. Say, for instance, if the day comes and I don't recognize you as my child, you know, smile, tell me your name and talk to me about your mother. Another issue would be um, before I married Mike and he is the absolute love of my life. We've been married 34 years. Uh, I had a marriage that wasn't that great. And what if dementia takes me back to a time when I was married to that person and I don't recognize Mike anymore? And what would that do to him? Not only to, not only to me, but you know, and you know, having those conversations ahead of time, you kind of think that you've dealt with it, but actually living it in the day to day has to be very different than that. But these are the kind of things that I'm aware of at this point in trying to trying to plan to some degree. <laughs> Well, I think it's a balancing between planning and, um, you know, one of my favorite authors says that worrying is failing in advance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Versus anticipation is succeeding in advance. And so while it's good to be prepared, I also think that particularly in today's society, you can spend all your time worrying about what if this happens or what if that happens. And if it distracts you from enjoying what you have in the moment, I guess I worry. My concern would be that that keeps you from the pleasure in the here and now. Yeah. And I think that part of what palliative care focuses on is helping people cope and still find meaning and enjoyment while living with their serious illness. Because although they have a serious illness, they are not their serious illness. They are still a person. Right. And the question is, how can they find meaning and joy in the life that they're living? Wow, that's, that's a great comment right there. Well, you know, one of the things that people dealing with somebody with dementia is exactly what Bob talks about is separating the disease from the person and recognizing even though they have some impairment, there are many things they're still able to do and they're still in there and the best in the ways that we can find to bring that person forward 
is how we make sure that they have their best possible days that they have left. Right. And I think he really put it in perspective about what is palliative care and a compare and a contrast with what is hospice care. I think that that cleared it up a, a good bit for me. Absolutely. And, and I don't think that many people, and maybe it's just my ignorance, who are dealing with a family member with a dementia even know that palliative care is available. Right. Until it's thrust upon them. And then that's just one more thing that they have to hurry and scurry to find information about. Well, I don't think they look for it because they don't know. In all of the forums that I'm on, I hear people speak of hospice care, but I don't hear them speak of palliative care. I don't think they know that it's for them. Right. As usual, we've learned a lot. And big thanks to Dr. Arnold for being a guest on the show. Well, I want to thank you all. It's been really helpful for me, and I've enjoyed talking to you. And to the degree that you're doing the education for the public, you're doing a fabulous service. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. One of my big takeaways, again, was the disease is not the person. Right. And palliative care helps them, you know, have the best quality of life it's possible. Right. You can find more information about Dr. Arnold and palliative care or learn about our sponsor, Artist Way, on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show, go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights, from dramas to comedies and all those in between. Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.